Greetings and welcome to Worship Matters, a podcast from Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church located in Music City, Nashville, Tennessee. This podcast deals with the intricacies of planning worship each week. I'm Diana Sanchez-Bouchong, Executive Director of Worship Resources and Director of Music Ministries. I'm Derek Weber, Director of Preaching Ministries. And I'm Lisa Hancock, Director of Worship Arts. During this time of transition from virtual to online and hybrid worship, the worship team has endeavored to provide conversations that inspire worship teams and leaders to seize this moment and realize the opportunities before the church, finding ways to help those worshiping with us to re-engage and shape the church we are becoming. Today we're going to have a conversation with William P. Brown. He is the William Marcellus McFeeters Professor of Old Testament at Columbia Theological Seminary in Decatur, Georgia. His writings explore the intersecting issues of ecology, justice, faith, and science from various biblical perspectives. He is the author of numerous essays and several books, including Wisdom's Wonder, The Seven Pillars of Creation, Seeing the Psalms, Sacred Sense, Handbook to Old Testament Exegesis, and most recently, Deep Calls to Deep, which is an Abingdon resource. Much of his work is driven by the desire to promote dialogue among diverse participants to foster mutual understanding and equity. Bill is ordained in the Presbyterian Church, USA, and loves teaching Sunday school. Welcome, Bill. We're delighted to have you as our guest today. And we always start off with this question. Just tell us how you're doing and tell us what you're doing at this time. (laughs) Thank you, Diana. It is great to be here with you all and with so many out there who are listening to this podcast. I seem to be attracting more attention from Methodists than from my own denomination, which is the Presbyterian Church. (laughs) What that means, I don't know. There's no judgment implied. It's just an observation at this point. How am I doing? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Uh, I'm in the (laughs) middle of finishing up my summer class, grading final projects, and moving on towards preparing for the fall term here at Columbia Seminary. So I'm sort of in the midst of what I call the whirlwind before the storm. There's a, there's no lull right now. It's just a whirlwind of trying to get some things done and getting ready for the excitement of a new semester uh, in the fall at Columbia Seminary. I will say that I've been so excited about this class that I helped co-teach uh, with a uh, colleague of mine, Mitzi Smith, on biblical perspectives on justice, uh, which attracted mm. uh, a number of, of doctoral students. And it was just a sheer pleasure to teach and to learn about and to be engaged in dialogue with. And so I'm I'm riding the quest, the crest of wonderful accomplishment in getting that class sort of concluded with lingering questions that will persist as I finish that and get ready for the fall term and teaching classes for our master level students. So it's a time of transition. It's an exciting time here on campus. And like I said, I'm glad to be here. So there's really no downtime is what you're saying, Bill. There's, there's always something you move from one thing to the other. It's, it's uh, hard to find a break in the midst of all of that. 
Well, I have to tell you, Bill, that after the introduction, there's so many things in there I would love to spend a podcast talking to you about. So we may have to have you back for a whole series of things to unpack. Mm -hmm. Just like the article, you wrote an article for Ministry Matters, which is a weekly email newsletter. And the title of it was So Much for Dialogue. But you start by quoting from a book titled No You Shut Up. It just took me back to the days of driving my kids around all over the place. And so this idea that dialogue is is falling apart. I have to say that that article has so many layers and so many things that, again, I would just love to spend time talking about. But, but let's get to the heart of it, to this idea of dialogue and how Psalms in particular, but how Old Testament can help us explore this idea of dialogue. Where is this going to happen? How is this going to happen? Help us, Bill. Help us figure out how to talk to one another again. Thank you, Derek. I, I am not a psychologist. I am not a, a community organizer, although I have interests in those areas, uh, to be sure. I, I simply read the Bible for what it is and learn from it and share that with students and anybody else who's interested in, in, in hearing me and to engage in dialogue with me. And so what, I, what I've been particularly struck with uh, the past uh, few years, particularly this time of so many disruptions from the pandemic to racialized violence and police brutality and issues of, uh, of inequity in our society. I've been struck that, uh, that in the midst of these very pressing issues, we seem to lack the ability to dialogue about them. We seem to be driven more into our enclaves and silos of common ideologies that we can't even talk about with each other anymore. And so I've, I simply have been aghast at uh, observing that uh, challenges that have beset us, that should unite us, have further driven us apart. You can call them cultural wars or ideological rifts or what have you. But in any case, we tend to, at least in the American political scene, we tend to demonize rather than the dialogue with our partners. We are a polarized society, and the church is suffering from that as well. In so many respects, the church reflects society. And so uh, we are dividing ourselves up. And I don't like to see that. I don't like to hear that. I want to be a part of the solution rather than just as a, as a passerby or passive observer of this. And so I've learned from reading scripture over and over again over these many years is that one of the values of scripture is its diversity, Old and New Testament, Hebrew Bible and the Second Testament, whatever you call these canonical divisions, they are brought together in the diversity that the Bible celebrates. In fact, what I have been particularly struck by is that if you compare the ancient scriptures of the Hebrew and Aramaic literature that we call the Old Testament with the other ancient Near Eastern literature, you find that what is particularly unique about the Bible is that it is so filled with diversity and tensions and even contradictions. And so I've learned to, to value that or to see that not as the Bible's liability, that we have to move directly into trying to harmonize these differences in Scripture, but to consider that as part of the asset 
of Scripture, a positive point of Scripture. If the Bible were a, a chorus, it would be filled with soaring melodies and some dissonance as well, as each voice gives voice to the witness that it uh, shares. And so the Bible is like a multi-voiced choir. It sings in many different voices. The Bible is filled with many different voices. And, and the Psalms are a classic exemplary illustration of the diversity of Scripture. I've always been struck by Martin Luther's classification of the Psalms as the little Bible, Decline shrift. And, and and that's true. So much of the Bible that you find from Genesis even to Revelation, Old and New Testament, you find encapsulated in the Psalms. And that was Martin Luther's conviction about the Psalms and why he gravitated to the Psalms so often throughout his uh, his life. So, yeah, the Psalms teach me that dialogue is good diversity is good, and talking about that diversity in ways that increase mutual understanding and learning is what it's all about. One thing I have learned these past few years is that dialogue is not driven by by the yearning for consensus or uniformity. If we, if we view dialogue's end and purpose as the as as achieving consensus then that can kill dialogue at the very outset rather our the purpose of dialogue is much larger than that we may achieve agreement in some areas and that's well and good but the real task of dialogue is to enhance and encourage mutual understanding of each other and, and mutual respect as, as well. And I think that is so sorely needed, both in American society and, and in the church. In fact, uh, I'm particularly taken with Eric Liu, who is the CEO of the, uh, what he calls the Citizen uh, University. And he says about an American culture, he says this, the point isn't for us to get some magical consensus that all Americans believe X where all Americans think this way. He says, America is an argument, and we were meant to contest the tensions between liberty and equality, between strong national government on the one hand and local control on the other, between a colorblind approach to law and the Constitution and a color-conscious one. And he says, all these tensions are baked into our whole system. Even though our politics is toxically polarized right now, we don't need fewer arguments right now. We just need less stupid ones. <laughs> <laughs> and so I see the Bible as something like that as well. It is a, it is a common foundational source of, of, of wisdom and, and life and faith. But it is a book that is filled with its own tensions and by virtue of its diversity. And, and so we draw from that, draw from the Bible as we learn how to dialogue with each other because the Bible itself is one sustained dialogue that goes off in many different directions. Yeah, I had a question before we move on from dialogue. I just want you, you state 
that dialogue happens at the table of fellowship. And I, I just love that idea of table because table is where we we do break bread. We sit with each other. We spend time and and grow as a community and to have these conversations around there. So I just wonder, one one is, do you have some ideas of how churches can approach that to have honest dialogue around a table of fellowship. And then I wonder, since you're a professor, if you see a generational difference between those willing to dialogue and those not willing to dialogue. Mm, That is such a great question, Diana. First, let me say something about the image of the table. I have found the table to be a very apt image and metaphor for conversation or dialogue. And for me, it has to be a round table and that there is a seat for everyone who wants to be involved in the dialogue. It's an open invitation. And I take my cue from Jesus, surprisingly, who seemed to have He seems to have excelled in dining with a whole motley group of folks, from tax collectors to prostitutes to sinners to people in power, leaders of the religious community, and and those who are forgotten. They are all invited to the table. And and I take the scholarship of a of a Hungarian New Testament scholar, Janos Boliki, who wrote a wonderful book on Jesu Tischgemeinschaften, that is, Jesus's table fellowship. And he's, he explores how open-ended that invitation was in the practice of Jesus, not only with his disciples, who are, of course, a motley crew in and of themselves, but, of course, with the larger members of the community, from high to low, from the most powerful to the most vulnerable. All are welcomed to the table. And, of course, as you said, it's at the table that we also eat together, the table of communion, and and that's a dimension of it as well. But uh, in the larger In the larger context of the table, it is eating, it is fellowship, and it is dialogue together among our diversity. So I'm particularly attracted to that image of the table as it was practiced in fellowship by Jesus, as as, uh, talked about in the New Testament. Now, your question about, have I seen a generational divide about dialogue? I, I, I haven't. But I would say that there may be some stereotyping that older folks have a certain way of thinking that are not shared by younger folks. And I think we have perhaps all have had the um, experience of a Thanksgiving dinner with our parents, and and there are topics that we tend to avoid, of course, right? Religion and (laughs) politics, of course, being the first two if not the only two. And and I'd love to see that get opened up so that we can talk about those things that matter to us most, which would include matters of faith and, and matters of politics in this country. But can we do so without causing everyone to have indigestion at the dinner table? Can we do that in a way that doesn't cause us to be red-faced with anger? And of course, today, with uh, American society riven by fear and hatred, uh, there is always the fear that if we enter into a dialogue that will provoke disagreement and argument, could that lead to violence? And, and that, I think, is a legitimate fear that needs to be overcome. And that's why the table has to be set in a certain way and prepared so that all feel welcomed and, and valued as the beginning point of dialogue. Thank you. 
Ken, uh, Bill, this idea of dialogue, I, I was intrigued by your comment that we're not really coming toward a consensus, which, which I guess implies that we're not always there to change people's minds. But doesn't there have to be a willingness to listen, at least? To, you said we're coming to understand. And so it's that openness about the conversation. That's what I think is, is lacking in a way in, in our society and even in our churches. We have our positions. We're going to hold our positions. I don't even want to hear you for fear it might threaten my ideas or, or thoughts. You know? so, so how do we move to that, to that, that idea that says, okay, you're not trying to change my mind, but I'm not sure I even want to listen to you? Yeah, that's a great question, Derek, and it is a great concern as well. Uh, dialogue has to begin with a certain openness of the heart and mind that is interested in what the other person has to say. And for many in in society and even in the church, uh, that 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 beginning point has not been reached, but it has to be reached. And so those who enter into dialogue will immediately be those who are self-selected because they are the ones who want to learn something of the other position and, and, and why that person holds this position with a willingness of why I find my position to be important and needs to be heard as well. So it is this mutuality. I would say perhaps the best way, and this is from my own experience, both informally and in the classroom, the best way to enter into dialogue is to begin to ask each of us to share our names, our backgrounds, and stories. Rather than launching into our positions, our position statements, begin with stories and experience. And, and that's always much more interesting than a position paper. And, and, but it may also be a central background to appreciate each other's positions. So like what NPR does with StoryCorps, I mean, everybody is interested mm -hmm. in sharing the story. And I think everybody's interested in listening to each other's stories as well. So if we can kind of get past the, the ideological rifts that separate us from each other and get to the personal stories that, that drive us, that are part of who we are, that form our identity, and to... to foster an openness to appreciate each other's stories. That's, that's where dialogue, genuine dialogue, I think begins most fruitfully. And, and we can get to our shared values and, and beliefs later, but our stories explain those and, and they are the point mm -hmm. of departure then for rich dialogue. And it, again, it may not reach a consensus, but it may reach some appreciation. I mean, there are points where where we will have to agree to disagree, and that's okay. But but in the process, we may find certain common ground that, that we hadn't realized before, as well as mutual learning uh, from each other, too. Bill, in uh, Deep Calls to Deep, one of the things that you invite us to explore is this idea that actually when we are coming to the biblical text, we are entering almost, I would 
maybe my rephrasing of it, and you can tell me if, if this works or not, is we're almost entering like a double layer of dialogue because we are encountering the text. And so we are dialoguing with the text and yet the text is also dialoguing with itself, right? And I actually love this quote that you have. You say, many Christians are unaware that the Bible, inspired and foundational as it is, is itself an e pluribus unum, a work of theological and literary diversity. And I wonder if you could unpack that. You've already started, but if you could unpack that a little bit more for us, because it seems like to this end, if we are going to enter into a dialogue with the text and with each other about the text and the dialogue that's happening within the text, we actually have to understand what the Bible is as a dialogue partner. Yeah, thank you, Lisa. And of course, this is where I begin as a professor of Bible at Columbia Seminary. I like to tell my students that the Bible, the Hebrew scriptures and the Greek scriptures, Old and New Testament, did not descend from heaven on golden plates. It, it, wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't dictated to an individual over the course of a few years. It is the product of centuries upon centuries of struggle, discernment, dialogue, in which different traditions are woven together, different perspectives are, are knitted together in this grand, as, as one of my Jewish friends, also a Bible professor, likes to say, the Bible is a mess. But it's a, it's a glorious mess. That's what the Bible is. And, and I love that. It's, it's, finding, it's finding the inspiration amid the diversity. And so, so there are many different perspectives that are preserved in the Bible. The fact that the Bible, like in the Old Testament, if you compare Exodus to Deuteronomy, Exodus has its own law codes called the Book of the Covenant in chapters 20 to 23. And then we have Deuteronomy that has a revision of those law codes in many respects, chapters 12 to 26. And the fact that the, our biblical editors did not throw out the Book of the Covenant in Exodus, but preserved it along with the differences that we find compared to Deuteronomy— they're both as they're both legitimate valid parts of the bible and and that says to me that the bible valued uh, our ancient editors valued the diversity as if to say for every generation here is wisdom but that wisdom is going to apply in different ways in different contexts and some passages of the bible will be more relevant for you today and at another stage in life there'll be other passages that will be more informative and edifying uh, for you or for this generation. It's like the Bible is saying, read it all. The invitation is to read it all and then decide through prayer and dialogue with each other what is most important in the Bible for such a time as this. And, and, and that time of this is different from the time of the past and yet, mm. and yet, those who have gone before us have granted us so much wisdom to partake of that uh, we can't 
we can't cancel out, we can't disvalue, we can appreciate where they were coming from as we discern where we are coming from to figure out how we go forward together as a community, even in our disagreements. And so, so the Bible is an e pluribus unum, it is a unity forged from diversity that preserves its diversity and is there to, to be read and to be explored and to be shaped by. And it's a glorious mess. Thanks be to God. <laughs> Thanks be to God. <laughs> Amen. Well, you know, outside of the, the, the Gospels, the other book that gets a lot of attention from Christians worldwide are the Psalms and beyond, of course. And I love your book, Deep Calls to Deep. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about the Psalter as we come to the end of our podcast here. You draw parallels in Deep Calls to Deep, which just came out a, a couple of years ago, between the challenges of the Israelites in the wilderness and today's people who are still dealing with the worldwide pandemic. And in addition, um, I found it interesting in the article that you stated that the Psalms, which are dialogical in nature, and they dialogue in many different ways, can offer us a model for the kind of dialogue we desperately need right now. So I'd like to give you some time to say a little bit more about that. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Diana. So again, taking my cue from Martin Luther, the Psalms sort of encapsulate the whole Bible and all of its diversity and the God that is worshipped and prayed to and praised is the God of the powerful and the vulnerable, the God of kings and the God of the poor and needy and everyone in between. It's the same God, but it's the God who, who brings together through the voices of the Psalms all sectors of society and of, of varying degrees of power in society uh, and in the Israelite community. So that's, that's the first thing I note is that this God is a very inclusive God that is addressed uh, in the Psalms. And so bringing the table imagery back into the fore, I, I see a large round table with 150 seats, and each one is occupied by a psalmist, a psalmist responsible for Psalms 1 and responsible for 47 and for 150, all the psalms. And, and what they're doing, of course, is praying to God out of their own situation, or they're praising to God for what God has done in their lives and in the life of the community. But then I ask the question, well, if they're all worshiping God uh, together, what happens after worship as they remain seated? What is their conversation with each other now, now that they have worshiped, prayed and praised and lamented? If they are, if the Psalms are about being honest to God, the Psalms are also about being honest to each other. Uh, and, and in doing so in, in the context of dialogue. And so I draw from that image of table fellowship in which the psalmists themselves, all 150 of them, are seated together in worship and, mm -hmm. and in dialogue. And so what particularly, I think for the past two years, two and a half years now during this uh, horrible pandemic, as well as that has also uncovered how deeply divided and how uh, inequitable our society is as it, as it exposed our social inequities. 
that the pandemic, which you think would have rallied everyone together to fight a common enemy, the virus, has only divided us further. The wilderness was for me an apt metaphor and image for what we were going through. And this was a time in which the the ancient Israelites were freed from bondage in Egypt. They were saved by the God of the Red Sea, and now they are roaming the wilderness, and they are complaining and bickering and fighting among each other, and poor Moses is caught in between, a God who wants to start all over again with a new community, and a people who are blaming God and Moses for their for their calamity in the wilderness. And so it was a time of great tension and conflict, not unlike the past two and a half years. Mm-hmm. And and so um, the Psalms, believe it or not, there are several Psalms that actually comment on the wilderness stories that we find in Exodus through Numbers. And these Psalms recollect different things about what transpired in the wilderness back in the day. And so, for instance, Psalm 105 celebrates God's providential care of the Israelites. God continues to provide water, manna, quail, and the like. And so God is a gracious God, and the people receive all these gifts of sustenance with thanksgiving as they make their way to the promised land. And then right next door, the very next psalm, Psalm 106, reviews that history and and then lifts up Israel's recalcitrance and rebellion and bickering and um, revolt against God in, in their yearning to return to Egypt to some degree of normalcy. And so these two Psalms, 105 and 106, celebrate together and recall together different aspects of that very formative time of testing and conflict, emphasizing both the positive and the negative. And I found ours, I found myself in a wilderness as well as, as communities have and society as a whole during the pandemic. It was a pandemic wilderness. And, and some of us yearn to go back to the past into normalcy and, and, and sort of deny the reality of danger that was all around us because of this virus. And others were saying, we cannot go back. We cannot go back to how things were. We are, we are forging a new, a new reality in coping with the virus and all the challenges that lie ahead of us, economically, socially, and ecologically. We need to move ahead and learn. And so the wilderness period is a time of unlearning the past and learning the new and adapting and coping surviving and learning how to thrive in this new reality of challenges. And so that's what the wilderness period is all about. And the Psalms feed into that as well as they lift up different dimensions of the wilderness tradition uh, to carry on from one generation to the next. So yeah, wilderness, pandemic, the Psalms, they're all in it together. (laughs) Derek or Lisa, do you have any other questions you want to ask? A million other questions I would love to ask. Bring, bring it on. Bring them on. <laughs> I, I don't really think we have time. I, 
I would like, for example, to talk about how the Psalms dialogue with each other. I mean, on one level, they just lay there beside <laughs> each other. It sounds like people who have their positions are going to hold their positions. They're going to shout their positions. I like the image of, of the choir that you described. Mm -hmm. Everybody has their own voice, their, you know, their own harmonies sometimes and rhythms. Um, but I need to understand the dialogue. How do they speak to each other? Because I think that's where we are. Yeah. We, are we have our own psalms that we're going to shout and we're going to sing and, and we don't listen. But, but you know, I, I don't know that we have time to unpack all of that except as a, as a hope that, that maybe there is possibility here. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm happy to share at least one insight into this, whether it's uh, preserved in this uh, podcast or not. But uh, there is there is a movement to the Psalter that begins with laments. Most of your laments are in the first half of the Psalter. And then you have this movement to praise with which the Psalter concludes. Everything that breathes, praise the Lord, Psalm 150. Mm -hmm. So there is this movement in the Psalms as a whole. And and one, one issue that is lifted up at the beginning, even as we get to the beginning of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You have different views of humanity's place in creation, made in the image of God, exercising dominion over the world, or the creation of Adam from the soil of the ground, the dust of the ground. That's Genesis 1 and 2. Well, in the Psalms, you have that conversation that moves actually to a sort of resolution at the end. So you have the eighth Psalm that celebrates humanity made just a little lower than the divine, crowned with glory and honor and, and everything brought under the feet of humanity. And then there's another creation psalm farther along, Psalm 104, that says humanity is simply one species among many species of creatures on this planet. And so there it's learning how to coexist uh, in harmony with all the other creatures of the biotic community. And then there is Psalm 148 towards the end of the Psalter that calls upon all of creation to give praise to God from uh, the heavens to the sea monsters to the animals to kings, men and women, young and old. And so I see Psalm 148 as a sort of resolution of these very different positions regarding mm -hmm. humanity's place in creation. Uh, dominion, and, and kingly on the one hand and a part of the rest of creation created from the ground and as one species among many. And Psalm, what Psalm 148 does is it calls all of creation to give praise to God by suggesting that our special role in creation is to enable all of creation to give praise. We're the ones that are meant to call all creation to give praise. And for all of creation to give praise, every, every creature, every ecosystem has to be thriving mm. and healthy yes. in order for that to happen. Yes. And so what Psalm 148 does, it takes that special role that humanity has in creation and the power that humanity wields to use it to enable all of creation to, to be sustained and to be, to be filled with praise to God. However, every animal does that of their own choice. So, mm. so, so there is this movement that moves 
sort of towards a resolution of positions that were staked out earlier in the Psalter. Well, it, it occurs to me, Bill, that maybe taking these three psalms would be a way to start the dialogue at a, a table fellowship at a church. Because as you're talking about it, I, I feel like we're stuck in Psalm 8 and we need to grow into Psalm 104 that then grows into mm-hmm. 148. And humanity, it seems we're stuck. We, we like the dominion part, you know, <laughs> being little le- a little less than God. And so maybe that that's fodder for the conversation. So maybe we can talk about that and create a guide for churches to start this dialogue using those texts. And I appreciate that all that you brought to our conversation today. And as Derek and Lisa have said, we could we could continue this for maybe make a series out of this. We'll talk about that. But we'll we'll end here for today. And I want to thank you for being our guest. And I want to thank all of you who are listening for joining us today. We hope that this has been helpful to you. And remember that you can find more information at our website, umcdiscipleship.org. We want you to tell us what you think, so send us an email. Be in dialogue with us. We, we want to know what you're thinking. Uh, so until next time, we will be praying for and with you and your congregation. May God continue to bless your worship ministry as you make disciples for the transformation of the world. This podcast has been a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Visit all our podcasts at podcasts.umcdiscipleship.org.